Stories bring lessons, laughter, unforgettable experiences, and memories that far outlive the storytellers themselves. Great stories happen to those who can tell them. This is the Jack and Around podcast, hosted by two-time Academy of Country Music Award winner and master storyteller, Jack Ingram. And now to introduce today's guest, here is podcast producer, Matt Fivato. Thank you, Mr. Roddy Yates. Welcome to part two of episode five, presented by the Mile Zero Music Festival. Catch Jack, Lucinda Williams, Black Smoke Cherry, Randy Rogers, Pat Green, plus dozens of others in Key West, Florida from April 27th through May 1st. For more info, visit milezerofest.com. So today's guest, Drew Brown's career in the music business spans over four decades and includes opening the now historic Blue Light Live in Lubbock, Texas back in 2000, producing events to being on the road with some of country music's biggest names, including Miranda Lambert to your host, Jack Ingram from 2005 or 2012 to most recently as Jason Aldean's production manager from 2015 through 2020. To recap part one, Drew and Jack share war stories of being on the road together for those six years and included with Drew visiting with Jack about being backstage at the Route 91 Music Festival in Las Vegas, Nevada during what now is the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. To put part two in better context, here is the last few minutes of part one put into a 30-second clip. We're in about six songs. And the seventh, um, when she said baby, is when it started. Stage manager comes to me and says, hey man, are there some fireworks that we don't, you know, going on that we don't know about? And then that's when a third burst and it came across the stage. And I heard it. Twenty minutes later in the mass chaos. And I'll, I'll tell you the story and this will make a lot more sense. You know what? Let's take a little quick little bio break real quick. You need to hear the, the story and it'll make a lot more sense. And you'll understand why I can't discuss a few things. For an hour outside, Drew went over in detail about that horrific night and discussed with Jack what he felt comfortable sharing in front of a mic. So before we begin, some quick housekeeping notes provided below in the description and at jackandaroundpodcast.com are Jack and Drew's bios, links to watch this podcast on YouTube, connect on social media, and a link to the website. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share, and give this podcast a big old awesome five-star review. Here's part two of episode five. Enjoy. Besides the accident, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Um, so pretty heavy, huh? Yeah. Um, it's about as heavy as it gets. I can see why you wouldn't want to ever talk about it with any kind of cavalier mindset, well, which which I hope that didn't come across as being cavalier. It's just no. you, know, you and I have talked about many things over the years, nothing nothing that, yeah. that uh, heavy. Well- it's a life-changing thing. Oh, absolutely. And this is crazy. That incident broke the record and is now the largest mass shooting in U.S. history. The previous record holder was here in Austin, Texas, University Tower, which my mother was in a university at that time, was in a bookstore, saw a commotion in the street, walked out with one of her dorm mates, and her dorm mate was shot and killed right in front of her. So when you, when you ran into your, when you came home after yeah. all the stuff that you went through, yeah. and you went to see your mother, yeah, I bet that was quite a comfort. 
for her just to have uh, the no, mother, just to be able to well, be, have an understanding, an an understanding, but a knowing mother. But I mean, just a mother's hug, you know, and all that stuff. And she also she also knew at that time not to oversaturate with that. I, I need to rephrase that. Let me slow down here. In the trauma situations, there's so many emotions and endorphins and, you know, everything that's, it's just the dump of everything because you're using so much of your fight or flight mechanism. And that is something that no matter how much training you have, no matter how much, you know, of a ninja badass you are, when that chemical triggered, you have no control over it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, some people that have the flight code, if you will, they will come back and have what's known as survivor's guilt or something like that. It's like, why wouldn't I have done something? Well, you have no control over that. And, right. you know, after you hearing the story, you know, I'm definitely not that person. I have the, the fight mentality. And that was during the shooting. This is, you know, I was asked, I did a, an hour and a half um, video deposition that, you know, kind of FBI kind of thing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, a couple of weeks after the incident in Nashville. And one of the questions was, you know, what kind of feelings did you feel during that emotions? And I remember very clearly, and I still remember very clearly, I had zero emotion whatsoever, very laser focused on a lot of that stuff. But I remember for a brief moment having a moment of rage and anger about when the fuck are they going to kill this motherfucker? Mm -hmm. Like, like, it's, uh, you know. Oh my God, this is out of control. I mean, we were shot at for almost 11 minutes, buddy. 11 minutes. So in that time frame, you know, 11 minutes doesn't seem long in the asp of a day, but put machine gun fire yeah. for 11 minutes and start a timer and think about that. And so like after... That November, right before Thanksgiving, I was asked to come speak at the uh, International Event Safety Alliance. Uh, it was held in uh, Rockland, Pennsylvania. And when we had come back on tour, we had um, a team that we referred to as the Sheepdogs because one of them had made a comment of like, you know, just remember, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, but we're just the Sheepdogs that watch over the flock, right? And it was some hyper-intelligent, you know, they had special forces and, you know, they were really good. Mm -hmm. But they weren't there in a, in a sense of presence to protect us. They were more there to kind of observe of what's going on and to help us um, adapt our situation and our environment moving forward with that. So one of those guys had done two, 10 different tours during the meat of all the stuff that was going on in the Middle East. And he had been in over 250 registered gunfights. And he's like, 
this isn't me, you know, taking pop shots here and there, getting shot at. Type. This is me, you know, a full team engaging to over 250 times. Mm-hmm. And that night before he came to Rock Lidditz with me to, to um, you know, to speak with me. And he goes, the night before, he goes, dude, what you went through in Vegas, I never went through. I've never been. And like all of those FBI guys that, you know, they are badasses, number one. And, you know, of the nine days I spent with them out there, um, you know, they're humans too. But they had never also had never dealt with a crime scene of that magnitude, that size. And I, and I, don't, I don't know if this holds true. And I, I hope that, that will, this will never change, that that will always be the biggest because God forbid anything else happen of that magnitude. But they had done a shipyard, I think, in Florida was the one before that. So they, too, acted very human with me in the sense that they had never dealt with that either. Right. So um, in that kind of healing process, we definitely lean on each other and a lot of that human things. But in a point, as a point to it, the FBI was, I was very surprisingly sensitive to a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I have since befriended a, a couple of the guys and one of the lead guys that was on it is a dear friend of mine now. And we stay in touch a lot. And his job is like anything that happens around any of the, you know, these States, he flies to it. Like he did the Parkland thing and things. It's like, man, could you imagine dealing with that? You know, the magnitude of that. Now, he's good at what he does because he has a personal touch. But once you absorb so much of that stuff, you have to put that somewhere. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And um, I was very, very adamant about all of my crew and getting help. Go get help. Go get help. And not only the trauma and the severity that they went through, you need to also realize that that their loved ones back home thousands of miles away also went through a trauma. Oh, yeah. You know? And so that's what's, you know, the, the military, especially some of those special forces guys, <clears throat> one of the worst things to put, one of the worst things in a situation of, of trauma, a fight or flight kind of situation is if you're in, a, um, in an environment where you can't do anything about your natural reaction. So, for instance, what I mean by this, let's say you are, I'm a fight person. And if I get put in that situation, I need to fight, but I can't mm-hmm. do to like, let's say I'm sitting in a helicopter or something and there's nowhere to go, you know, and let's say you're a flight guy and there's nowhere to run because you're pinned in a little bunker. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is even more traumatic on the brain and the psyche because you're not allowed to do what you're naturally trying to do. Right. So, um, I pushed a lot of the crew, get help, get help, get help, get help, get help for, you know, and 99.99 of them did. Right. Now, when you were telling me the story of what, of the replaying it for me, what you remember of it, you, you could do some, you did what you could do. That's it. You were, you were active as if by instinct. Yeah. And a lot of the crew guys are, are going 
and going through what's called survivor's guilt. And it's that, it's like, man, I was there. I wish I could have done more. I could have done more. I don't really have any of that survivor's guilt. I did everything I could. Right. And as you know, from my story, I came across situations that weren't part of my crew per se, but I, I couldn't not do something. So I, I, well, being there for some of the passages that you witnessed from this world to another, yeah, that has an, uh, that has an effect on, like, it's almost like you, you, the way you were describing it, in those instances, in those moments, you knew those people. Yeah, absolutely. And so as, you know, the following days after that happened, and as I told you um, earlier that, you know, it took 11 days for our stuff to get off the stage and everybody, of course, was back home except for me. I was still out there and I spent nine days of those 11 out there um, dealing with all of that situation. While everybody else was getting support, not only from loved ones, their loved ones, but also professional help, you know, um, music care nows. If you have an extra nickel or anyone give to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that Anyway, just it's unheard of what they stepped up to do. Now, all that said, in a very odd way, and what I was telling you is where they put me after that, I was in the MGM. My room overlooked, and I'll show you a video of this in a bit. Straight out was the window. Straight down to the right was the entire scene. So you sat there reliving it. Yes and no. Um, I I later learned on like flashbacks and things that people have and a a lot of the crew members were having, even when we'd gone back on the road, there was many, numerous of them were having a lot of trouble sleeping, would have, you know, numerous flashbacks. What I later learned um, from a trauma healing workshop that I attended for a week, um, in 2019, a flashback is your mind replaying that just because it doesn't know how, what really happened and, um, what they call like PTSD anorexia. It's like some just the opposite. Some are, you know, have constant fear. Some have other things, but it also, um, can be a trigger for other traumas that had popped up in their lives. And, you know, I was in a situation where kind of my path was, and as you know me, um, and my ex-wife will tell you this as well. Uh, after two years, I was, I was having some, I don't want to call them issues. I couldn't overcome some things. And I use this as a reference because you know me and my little analogies. So like I'm in a truck and a brand new truck and I'm, everything's fine with the truck. And I was driving down a dirt road and I slide off the dirt road and I can't, and I'm stuck. Nothing's wrong with the truck. The truck's perfectly fine. It's just, you're stuck. And I couldn't get myself unstuck. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in a dark spot, but just, I felt this sense of something's about to happen. I don't know if it's going to be bad, good, but just something's coming 
not necessarily not in a fearful way of something's coming after me. It was just this something's there. Mm-hmm. And this started getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Well, as the universe works, that energy started showing me these little signs, these little things, these little things, these little things. And, you know, I took those in as I'm going to give you one last chance to get some help before the, you know, whatever's coming, I'm going to get sent. Right. Right. Um, Max wife called because as you know, we're still dear, dear, dear friends. And she said, Hey, I've got, um, an extra ticket to go see cat powers. And so I went, I, telling her, it's like, I'm really contemplating. I think I need to get some help here. And we went and saw that show. And at the end of her show, which powerful, you've never seen her live. She said something on stage that just sent me to tears. Then what'd she say? It's, it's more of a reference with the universe. She's like, um, There's so much hate. There's so much things out in the universe. I just want to thank everyone for being here and surrounding me with love. And we forget sometimes that. I I can't really quote it exactly, but it's more like to be loved or doing things that we love don't always love us back. That's what she was saying. And she's like, and then she said, I just want to thank you for being here and loving me. And it, it sparked another reference. So let's say the next day I fly out to Vegas, um, excuse me, fly out to Nashville and I'm doing this Pandora event. <clears throat> and this organization was there giving an award. Um, in correlation to this trauma thing. And one of the speakers that they had was the gentleman in Nashville that had uh, stepped up and rescued at the Waffle House shooting that had occurred. And he was speaking in front of this audience. And there were some friends that, um, that were there that were receiving some awards that were in the front row. And I'm backstage cause we're going to do this little pop-up surprise. Um, I'm sitting on the side of the stage and I'm watching this guy and he just freezes and stops and he turns and does this million mile stare across. And if you don't know what that is, and I didn't know it before, you know, veterans and military and things like that, they always reference that. I didn't know what that was, but then after the Vegas thing, I knew exactly what it was exactly what that feeling was what is it it's just staring off into literally the void of everything but it's it's i don't know what's physically chemically happening in the brain and you know me i'm always one of those i need to know how the mechanism works it's just this it's like almost like this white noise just just pulling out but you can't do anything when that's going on so it pushed me. So at this event, once I saw that guy do this million mile stare, the people giving the award to this gentleman, 
was a thing called onsite. And it's a um, wonderful facility. Another one of my friends, you remember Metallica Lindsay? Mm -hmm. Remember, you know, she and I, she's my rock as well. She had sent me a text that that afternoon. She's like, hey, my friend from onsite is going to be there. I would love for you to talk to her. And we did a cordial handshake kind of in the things, and but nothing from that. That was an, yet another sign. So I saw that that night, saw the pain, but just saw the loss and saw the void. And I'm like, that's it. And so I go to the airport because I'm flying back that evening, like at midnight. And I go to the airport. My flight was like, you know, 5 a.m. the next morning. So I'm just, I'm going to go sleep at the airport. And I get there and there's this, this kid, probably 18, 19 years old, just startled. And he'd got there probably about 3 a.m. and had never flown before in his life. And this is an amazing story. And I, I don't get into too many details about it. If you don't believe in higher powers, that person was put in my life as my last final sign. I had the most amazing experience just taking care of this kid that had had nothing. Jack, when we got the DFW, the kid had never been on an escalator, let alone in a plane. Now, I got, when we were boarding, I had a first class flight because I usually rack up the miles and I had been upgraded to first class and I walked up to the lady at the counter and I said, there's a kid that's his first time ever. You see him over there. And I pointed and I said, he's in seat, you know, things right in the middle in the back. And I said, I'm going to sit in his seat and he's going to sit in my, my first class. I want his experience. And it, it, it's a, there's a lot of other things that had happened in between that. Just he and I kind of palling up, just tucking him underneath my wing kind of thing. And the, uh, the stewardess on the plane, when the flight attendants found out what I had done, he comes and says, Mr. Brown, we, anything you want. I'm like, no, I, no, I just want him. I don't want anything. About I want him to have a good experience. So I landed that next day. When I landed, I called Tara. I said, I'm going. I don't care what it cost. I called my friend Lindsay in Nashville. I said, I'm going. I don't care what it cost. And um, onsite changed my life, man. How long were you there? A week. And the they do multiple, you know, different um I don't want to use the word treatment because it's not that kind of things. They do have a like a 30, 60, 90 day kind of treatment program, but that's on a different kind of campus on the or let me say in a different part of the campus where we were was it's in Cumberland Furnace Tennessee in like a, from the 1700s this old school mansion and they've got these beautiful cabins and um, the trauma healing workshop that I was at your your first name only you're not allowed, not allowed to talk about your profession and that's kind of where they draw the line 
And, you know, you hints after uh, the group was, we were a, a community of, of about 48 of us actually. And then you break down into, we broke down into four smaller groups. All there for eight. different reasons. Oh, absolutely. Buddy, buddy. When I talk about, I mean, but these, I later found out many of these people are powerful CEO peoples, you know, you know, running the game, right? But just stuck, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Some, I'll tell you later some of the stories from them. Oof. Think we had it bad? So there's a community of 48. Then there was four different groups that broke out of groups of eight, which we called our family. And that's not what they referred to. That's just what we called it. And then there were some that was there doing an intensive one-on-ones. Well, anyway, fast forward. Four groups of eight equals 32. Did you not hear us? Then some of them are doing intensives one-on-one. <laughs> -on -one. <laughs> Don't you do math on me, buddy. So, yeah, man, changed my life. And those people I for, will forever hold in a special place because we're going into a room of complete and total strangers. Mm -hmm. And within a week, walking out because we're all talking about the deepest, darkest of all darks. And, you know, my, my backstory and, you know, I had a wonderful childhood and I had some things that started happening when I was 19 and, you know, lost some people very, very, very close to me. Right. And then I had some more loss a little few years later of another incident. And you know all of that. And I was packing away a lot of this stuff, right? So um, their, I don't want to say process, but a lot of their, the th um, is dealing with that, that struggle of how the body reacts to trauma. And there was a correlation that through some research that another doctor had done where trauma is stored in the lungs, Okay. So I'm not going to get into their in-depth process, but let's go back to that thing where the little fight or flight brain that is holding on to information, what they basically the trick and the magic behind it is they release and get these two brains communicating again. Mm -hmm. And this brain says, finally, let's go the information. All I was doing is protecting this one's like, thank you for telling me. Okay, now we're back streaming. And that's the mentality of living a life where basically both of those are living in a sequence. Now, what happens in some people's trauma is we pack it away. And there's a, there's a great, fantastic book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a very dense read with a lot of research-based stuff, but it's that correlation of we pack it literally away into our body because if the mind can't deal with it, it then shoves it into the body and the, in the body, if the body doesn't get it off and out of you, it just twists it up somewhere, mm -hmm. no matter where it might be. And, um, the lungs being one of the most powerful ones of those. So yeah, man, I learned some amazing tricks that I, I will forever be grateful now. I've become a lot more self-aware, um, yet I still do struggle sometimes. Just it's, it's really stupid, but we as humans sometimes go to what we feel is the easiest path or just the things when it really is the most difficult process to dealing with something. 
Right. Instead of just stepping back, stopping, breathing, taking two seconds, five, whatever, and then accomplishing it. Right. But instead we get so wrapped up, go, 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 do this, do this. And it, that in turn changed my life. But what it also gave me and what was my, my, my biggest pain was I was seeing crew members struggling, even though some of, you know, majority of them were going, getting professional help in the correct way. They were still struggling with something. And what hurt me the most is I couldn't do anything about it because I didn't know. And I'm definitely still not a professional, you know, psychiatrist or any kind of anything like that. But it gave me the tools to also be a lot more, not only self-aware of what's going on with me, but aware of someone else like, hey, man, this one's about to this one's about to go. Mm-hmm. And then grab, you know, taking them and whatever, whatever way that person needed just away from that. It's like, okay, let's just step away. Okay, let's do this. Or, you know what? Hey man, why don't we do this? Or now of the 76 crew members that band, were there, band and crew that were there, how many, how many are still on the road with you guys? Um, roughly about 50, you know, some stepped away and retired. Some had some other health issues pop up. Um, some others popped in some other camps and oh, and this is, this is crazy that ye- next year after that, because th- when that incident occurred, we were f- really close to kind of the tail end of the tour. So I think we only had like maybe nine shows left and that we kind of finished up that next year we had done a performance at the CMA at the, st- uh, the stadium, um, mm-hmm. at their Nissan stadium. And I'd found out that there was going to be a fireworks show. And I informed all my crews, okay, guys, right after, immediately following Jason's performance, there's going to be fireworks. They're going to be big. They're going to be coming from here. Everybody knew what was going on, including the band. And they went off, you know, and it's like, okay, thank God I knew that, you know, and thank God. And they were coming to me. It's like, thank God you told us about that because that would have been fucking traumatic yeah and so then i took that knowledge it's like oh shit wait a second not everybody not all the 76 are with us out this next tour so i found out where they were and what tour they were on so i was also advancing those people's tours if they were checking those towns to see if there were fireworks and would call either their tour manager or production manager or physically call that one person and it's like hey man i know you're out with so-and-so and in you know, Buchanan, Wisconsin, but hey, buddy, I need to tell you that there's going to be a fireworks show. Yeah. And there's, yeah. So, so it's, it's a continual. Oh, and that's process. the other thing. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd hints after, you know, that speaking engagement that I did with the International Event Safety Alliance. And these are people from all over the world, you know, like people that soccer stadiums and blue, blah, blah, of all walks of life in the touring field and, um, I spoke at South by Southwest and one of the panel that I was on, one of the girls that had lived through the Virginia Tech shooting and she had started a company called Live Safe that offers a lot of tools that are helping out as well. And um, yeah, she and I kicked it pretty hard and she's good peoples. And 
she had a complete and total kind of career path change to, I have information that I want to share with people so that if ever that incident were to occur again. And so I took that same mentality in a lot of ways. And, and um, Jason's tour manager and I both, we don't, we can't be the face to that incident out there mm -hmm. because we're not. And we're not going to let it define us yet. If there's information that I know from getting shot at for 11 minutes that might help in another situation down the road for someone else. So as I spoke at, you know, and both of those speaking engagements, it's like, I can't do it by myself. We have to do it as a community. So a lot of this and the change, and that's what we're kind of working with. I can't do it as a single, we have to do it as a whole. And a lot of these things are what we've turned a blind eye to that are quote unquote industry standards. Like, oh, that's just the way it is. Don't worry about that. And that's the way it's been for years. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm fucking done with that. We know it's wrong. It's been wrong for years. And it's not something that just broke or needs to change now. It's just like, oh, that's just the way it is. Give me an example. Security issues uh, involving screening, security issues involving lax um, uh, perimeter, security or evacuation protocols, um, evacuation information, eva and, you know, and what I mean by that is like, ah, don't worry about it. And some people's mentality, here's a great example. On the security side of things, too many venues have through the years are hiring hammers. And what I mean by that is if you're a hammer, all you're looking for is a nail. Poof. That's it. It's not an attack situation that you need to bring this mentality into. And this is something that we learned from some of our special forces friends that came out with us. And later, some of them, you know, helped us out with a lot of that. One of our friends is works for the Secret Service. I think I can say this. He goes, dude, you know what the biggest tool that we have is? It's nothing we're doing anything, you know, special that not everybody has. Our biggest thing is in our name, secret. Now, they're informed. Everybody knows what that information is. We're just not letting that out go out everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So now keeping that tool in our situation puts in protocols. So at our touring level, we have a protocol on the internal bubble level. We have a different protocol. Everybody knows that. And then what we're trying to do is we were showing up to these venues and some of these quote unquote security directors at these venues were hammers. They were just that mentality. Oh, I've been doing this shit 45 years. Don't you tell me I got the biggest boys across the County. They'll crack skulls. You know, I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, we're not cracking skulls, baby. We're in the entertainment business. You know, we're here to entertain. These people pay our, pay our salaries. Mm -hmm. So it's changed the things like, let's have an open communication with this, you know, but then it, that also spins into a safety mechanism as well. And what I mean, like we'd show up to gigs and the local union guys like, man, I've been to my sixth day in a row. I hadn't slept. I slept in the car. It's like, dude, and that guy's about to hang 95,000 fucking pounds over our head. Whoa, whoa. Right. Right. So it, it, it's, uh, that's what I mean by turning a blind eye, 
no one is dealing with this stuff. It's like, whoa, okay. But I'm also not there because if you go in as a hammer, if that mentality and try to push that around, there's not going to be any change, buddy. Because what's going to happen is at the end of the night, they're going to, you're going to climb on your tour bus and you're going to talk shit on how bad they were, right? Guess what? They're going to go to their car, their bar, whatever, and they're going to talk shit about how bad you were that whole time. Instead of a communication could have happened earlier on or before, and that's all alleviated. Just some understanding on both sides. Sounds like the real world. Sounds like what we're dealing with. Dude, if it was that easy, though. That's what I mean. You know? What we deal with every day on TV and politics and everything. It's just this miscommunication with bunch of hammers dude so how do we change to push the hammers out well stop accepting it right so again no one it's not going to change the industry if I'm like I'm going to be the one that has to have this or demands this or this is the way it's going to be it has to be a whole so we collectively in the industry is like, nope, not acceptable. I know, I know it's there, you know, and it's even at the level of a booking agent. Guys that drive a desk for a living and girls that drive a desk for a living, it starts with them too. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to communicate this to the buyer, to the promoter, to, to whomever. And even getting down to the fans too. You need to realize it's like, look, we're in the fun business, right? Some of the hammers that were going, well, you need to have this and snipers on this and machine guns at this and have this. I'm like, wait a second, dude. We're in the fun business. If it stops being fun at our concerts, guess what? People don't go. And guess what we don't have? We don't have a job. So we have to keep this fun, yeah. but safe. Cool. Hey, man. Thanks for talking. Dude, sorry, man. I mean, there's you and you know, and I, we could talk for years. Absolutely. But, uh, um, I know this was, I, so, I wasn't, I'm not sure I was prepared for the weight that you're, that you've been carrying. Yeah. When we first started talking about it, I thought, we, you know, hey, man, how did this make you feel? What, what were you thinking? And I realized now that, um, yeah, true trauma is not, it, it's, it's a lot, it, it's affected every, every facet of your yeah, life and absolutely. Of your psyche. And so you opening up even as much as you did yeah. about what's going on and what happened and how it affected everybody on that tour, everybody in that audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it affect, it's affected the entire en- sure. entertainment industry since. And in the other side of this, and I, I need to say this, if, if whatever, all 25 people are going to watch this, Sorry, buddy. It's not it's 27. a 27, sorry. It's not a gun issue, right? It wasn't a security issue. The, one of the lead guys from the FBI that we became close with after, right before, about a little after a year, they said, man, I'm sorry. We didn't find anything. What it was, was a mental illness issue. And what's so sad is it's easier to go by 
any of that, any kind of weaponry than it is to go get some mental fucking help. Oh, absolutely. Right? They'll now, you, now. They'll give you drugs for $10 copay. You know me. But you got to pay 150 bucks to go see a psychiatrist. Exactly right. You know me. I'm a gun guy and always will be. Yet, it's not a gun issue. It's a mental health issue. So, the other side of that, the conspiracy theories, oh, there was nine things. I don't give a fuck if there were 75 shooters, 58, now 60 dead. 890 something injured. Right? Just because one person couldn't get the help they needed. What's the name of the organization you guys are starting in Nashville? Like Well, again, we don't we don't really want, as I was saying, want to put a face to this. There's a lot of other, let's just put it this way. There's we're helping out a lot of other organizations. All right. That's easy enough to put it that way. I don't think we want to put a brand to this because we don't want to profit from any of this. What it is is communication. Mm -hmm. as, as an industry as a whole, if I know something that could help you and I don't tell you, that's neglect, right? But if there's information that I have and tools that I have, it's communication. And guess what? 99% of the time, that person I say that to it's like, oh, man, that's cool. We've also been doing this and found out this works. Or after y'all's thing out there in Vegas, we implemented this and we found out that this works. It's like, cool. That's great. You know what? Do you mind if I share that? And it's like, absolutely. So it's communication, talking, not necessarily about how to do this, nor gloating about, oh, we're doing this. We're all badass. It's this quote, that secret servicey kind of mentality where we're keeping this as a secret so it's still a fun business, yet we're changing that internal kind of mentality of how it's, how the inner workings are worked. Right. 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 To where Amen. it works without being noticed. And I've told you this, I'm super proud that I make my living in the shadows. I've never been one in front of lights. You are just the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It takes us both. That's right. Right. And in that mentality, we're all in that game, you know. If you're scrubbing toilets or if you're a cowboy hat wearing, screaming in a microphone for 90 minutes, at that one event, it takes us all to pull it off. And it's opening up those communications on all of that level for us to change. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, give us a big old five-star review if you enjoyed this podcast and visit jackandaroundpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.